I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I'm your host, Sarah Century, and we have a very special guest today, Nalo Hopkinson. Welcome to the show, Nalo. Hi. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it always surprises me when people do that. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's weird because you're like a person who's been alive and like became the person you are, but come on now. Like, <laughs> you're amazing. <laughs> Like, there's a reason I'm woohooing. <laughs> <laughs> My mother will be pleased to hear that. <laughs> she doesn't believe me when I tell her. We can definitely relate. <laughs> I'm sure she's listening in. No, and I hope she'll never hear this either because I'm, no, not being fair to her. Oh, but if we can't make jokes about our family, then we only have the baggage, you know? So it's like, need the levity to go with it. <laughs> so true. So you are a writer and a teacher, and uh, you are a novelist, and you also did the House of Whisper series. And is there a good website or a social media place to find you? I'm on nalohopkinson.com. That's my website. Social media, I got off Facebook. I got off Twitter. 
Uh, I can't figure out Instagram. People can find <laughs> me on, can find me on Patreon if they want to at Nalo underscore Hopkinson. Oh, awesome. I didn't even know that. Great. So we are huge fans of House of Whispers. We do comic of the week segments and we just talked about House of Whispers. And then, of course, I did a review of House of Whispers and <laughs> made it uh, one of my comics of the year for 2019. And then also one of my comics of the decade for the 2010s. So it's pretty safe to say that I am a big fan oh, <laughs> of House of Whispers. Of course, of course. I Second. love that comic. So I was just curious because I watched a video actually that was you kind of talking about how much inspiration you draw from sci-fi and fantasy. And of course, you teach creative writing and sci-fi and fantasy emphasis. But I was just wondering, did you have a background in comics at all before you started writing this comic? Well, I read them a lot. As a kid, I read a lot of largely my cousin's comics because that's what I could access. So it was a lot of superhero comics. And then he had Mad Magazine. He had something called Eerie. He had something called Plop, all in very bad taste. So I loved them as a kid. Um, I loved Eerie. Yeah, that's a big oh, one yeah. for me. He had Vampirella. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> And then I sort of, <laughs> yeah. Sarah loves Vampirella so much. Like, I, I imagine that she's just losing it. Like, I can just see her in my mind just be like, ah! It is in bad taste, but it is a great comic, oh, so too. Bad. <laughs> my body dysphoria started. Oh, really, wow. Nobody can wear two strips of leather and run around and jump. Anyway, that's, that's another discussion. <laughs> Oh, we we should do that discussion at some point, though. We sh we should all sit down and let's talk about what the hell is Vampirella wearing. I like it. I mean, as a lover of the female form, I like. But as you know, also a person with breasts, I'm confused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how gravity impacts you differently than everyone else I know with breasts, but I don't know. I sure know how it would impact me. I'd knock myself out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Vampirella and then for years I didn't much read comics not because of any dislike but I guess a bunch of reasons and one is I didn't know where to find them and I remember being probably mid-30s going into a comic book store in Toronto and having a bunch of mostly very pale 15 year old mostly boys look at me just aghast at <laughs> this woman more than twice their age walking into the comic book store and so didn't do that again <laughs> uh, it has, thank heaven, changed or I've gotten geekier or something. Um, but then I discovered the Invisibles and I discovered the Brothers Hernandez. And all of a sudden, comics started to look a bit more like things I could relate to. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, I just got back in. Yeah. We so. love Love and Rockets on this podcast. We've done whole episodes. I think we did like a whole one that was just us talking about how much we really love <laughs> Palomar and uh, <laughs> yeah, all of totally. that. <laughs> yeah. We were like, oh, wait, we get to like decide what the podcast talks about. Uh, do you want to just talk about Palomar for a whole episode? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. It was great. What a breadth of comic roots. <laughs> like, it's so cool that from Vampirella to the Hernandez bros, it's like, that's a cool range of comics to be in your mind as you're coming to build something like House of Whispers. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I had read Neil's work, Neil Gaiman. I started with his prose, um, mm -hmm. even though what everyone was telling me was, you know, read the comics, read the comics. I am a contrary soul, so I started with his prose. <laughs> um, <laughs> went on to read... Sandman much, much later in life. But yeah, I did have a 
good enough grounding in reading comics. What I had was no grounding in writing them. <laughs> and House of Whispers is your first comic, right? Yeah, it's, so <laughs> no pressure. That is, a, <laughs> that is a heck of a first run. That's all I'm going to say, because I've literally said, if you want to know how comics can come together in this way where it's just every person is doing the work, you know, and making this great kind of combined force. I wouldn't say that there's any better example. But I was curious, how did House of Whispers come about? I mean, obviously, you have written a lot of novels. And I've read some of them. I haven't read all of them. But I'm excited to looking through all of them because, yeah, what I've read, I've been totally blown away by. But yeah, I was just curious how this wonderful comic came to be. Well, the part I didn't see was, I guess, Neil and then Vertigo talking and deciding to do a reboot of The Sandman. Neil wrote out maybe four four to six pages of what's happening now in The Sandman series. They decided to do the reboot with Lucifer. With, right. Yeah, yeah. So there were four series. Right, like um, The Dreaming with that was by uh, Colin Bunn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah, Lucifer, Dan Waters, and the kid, Timothy whatever his name is, by Kat Howard, who uh, was a student when I taught at Clarion once, and a student of Neil's as well. So Neil said, so there's going to be a new house. It's going to be the House of Whispers. It is run by Elsa Lee, who is the Yoruba, by way of New Orleans, deity of love and sexuality. And she particularly looks after women and children and queer people. And I guess he must have given them a list of names of people for all four that he thought could do it. And they went through the list. So I heard from Vertigo and they told me what was happening. And they said, would you be interested in any of these four? I said, "Uh, yeah, House of Whispers, that would be mine because that would be the one I would want to do because um, I write a lot about Yoruba. I I do fantasy that's said a lot in Yoruba belief systems. And they said, all right, can you have us a proposal in two days? (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to read that proposal I won't reread that proposal it's bad Um, but I got it done uh, sent it in and then heard nothing for three months Um, got back in touch and said so is anything happening and they said yeah we just have to clear some stuff up first things are going to start happening quickly though so stand by and then heard nothing for two years <laughs> but I know how these industries work, so I didn't think anything of it. I just moved on to other yeah. things and heard back two years later from a different editor. There was now a new uh, editor at Vertigo, and he said, Are you still interested? And I said, uh, Hell yeah. Are you interested? Because I never heard whether you liked my proposal or not. And they said, Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's my yes. Okay. <laughs> They're like, It was fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> they did not say we're taking it on faith. They did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Uh, you were on my list of things to do today. What the hell? <laughs> so that's how it started. And at some point, all of us, the four writers and Neil and the Vertigo folks all went to New Orleans to have a writer's meeting, which I was very excited about because I write solo. Usually I've never been to a writer's meeting before. Right. Um, And what a group of people to have one with. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Uh, when I decided. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Jim, I'm forgetting Jim's surname, but he heads up DC. So they were all there and a whole team of like makeup people and photographers. But that's when I decided to set the primary world part of the first book of House of Whispers in New Orleans, because it's kind of where <laughs> Elsie is from. And New Orleans is such an amazing city. It's 
pretty much magic all in itself and such a rich and troublesome, rich history of dealing with race and power and ethnicity and slavery and all of that stuff that is the meat and drink of what I write. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine the comic almost in a different place because obviously it has, it goes into different worlds and things like that. But yeah, it's just a grounding point. It is so tied to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I went back to New Orleans for a few days um, that summer just to sort of walk the boards and get a sense of the place um, because I hadn't been, that was only my third time visiting and did a lot of research and a lot of looking up how people speak and thank God for YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. You get, you get people just for the fun of it say, okay, so I'm from New Orleans and here's how we talk. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, so Josen, what does that mean? Yeah, I don't quite get it, but I'm going to use it in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I really thought you captured about like the specificity of, of New Orleans that I'm like 85 layers removed from. But the one thing we have in common is I grew up in a hometown that our whole industry was based on tourism. And I thought you really captured that spirit of like antagonism towards tourism, but also like dependence upon it in the way that the characters who are from New Orleans engage with either the actual visitors, the actual tourists, or the concept of tourists in the narrative. And I thought that was like such a thread people don't always tease out in stories set in tourist destinations. And so I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really powerful and all the more so, right, with the layer of the different power dynamics around race and gender and poverty and wealth and whatnot. So I thought that was like very, very cool. Thank you. What town are you from? Oh, I'm I'm from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. It's like a tiny, itty bitty little ski town. It's beautiful. And I I wouldn't move there for all the money in the world. <laughs> it means you understand seasonal tourism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also like a, a very, very racist place and pretty homophobic. And so being a like, you know, fat, non-binary trans person, not a haven. So, uh, yeah, that's a, I mean, it was, it wasn't like, I don't know. It sucked the way lots of places suck, but I, yeah, definitely couldn't go back. But see, you know, then, then I get to read about New Orleans and I'm like, I don't know, this, this house of, uh, Dahomey, am I saying that right? House of Dahomey is the name of her ship. It's also the name of the... Like Alter Boys Community, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. It's the name of the, yeah, the oh. Boogie House mm. that, that oh. Alter Boys oh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. I just like, you know, when as a queer consumer of comics, I never take for granted how queer a comic gets to be, especially one coming out of the big two. And so, like, I kind of was like, oh, I'll be sated with the queer women couple that are the pro tags. Like, okay, that's enough. And then I was like, oh, oh my God. You know, like, I could be so invested and excited about having a super rich queer cast. And that was just, I, like, have tears in my eyes because it was so, it felt like coming home in a way, like, I am not a part of that community at all. I am a white person. I do not Vogue. I do not do drag. And, and it felt like, parts of our our the mutuality we have was just so rich there and it felt like oh we need this kind of queer representation so badly so i was very grateful for it that means so so much to me because it definitely was what i set out to do and uh, vertigo just ran with it i got no pushback at all there is one scene that's a sex scene between the two women 
where Vertigo's higher up said, okay, so we can't have the vibrator in the scene. <laughs> she wasn't even used it at the time. She was just holding it. Um, and they were They're never like, going to do full frontal male nudity. Oh. And I was like, all right. So then the breasts are coming out. But I have to just start covering them up because I'm like, if the men can't get in full time, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to prepare for it. However, right. that was not Vertigo's doing and they fought hard for it. They just ran with whatever I wanted to do. I got no weirdness, nothing from them. And it, it just meant so much to me to be able to put these characters in and to pretty much as much as I could normalize their lives, I mean, without trying to sugarcoat what they go through, just put them on the page and make them central and make queers that look like me <laughs> be there and to have artists who knew what to do with African hair, you know, right. yeah, people like Domo Stanton who did the inks for, the, for most of it. Yeah, I was going to actually ask how the creative team came together because I look at the covers of the book and I look at the interiors, even the colors, those purples, all of it. I just think that it fits together so, so perfectly. It's like there's just kind of this great chemistry behind the scenes. And I was just curious if you had any role in choosing the creative team or if it was just kind of that recommended to you. I had the role of Vito. Other than that, they chose the team. And mm -hmm. if I said, no, this one I don't quite like, what they're doing here or they're not capturing this then they went and looked for somebody else but everybody who worked on that thing are, are just such geniuses i don't know how many different artists for the cover art i know that one of the alternate covers for issue one is by bill sinkevich right um, yeah i loved getting to phone my brother and say guess who's doing the cover <laughs> and he kind of squealed <laughs> um, but all the artists i love that <laughs> The cover artist, Domo, and all the people who did the inks. The letterer, Duran Bennett, is a freaking genius. All yeah. the people who did the colors, like what they did was just creating a visual language for each issue and each section with colors. Um, I'm used to writing words in black <laughs> on a white screen. So when I started seeing Domo doing character drawings of my characters, it was like we were making people. It was just so amazing to me. And every issue I would get the artwork and I would just sort of squeal. <laughs> I was just so happy. And they made it better. They made my imagination better. So I had one look in mind for her. And, and, and Domo drew all three sisters and the eldest one's girlfriend and <laughs> nailed it. And as I looked at the girlfriend, I was like, Domo, I kind of want to ask for her number. but <laughs> But I think... <laughs> I made her. She doesn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's me with Erzuli. With Erzuli, Frida, I'm like, someone needs to get me involved in the worship here because this seems like my scene. I feel like I would really fit in. Yeah. yeah. And, and she would have some lessons to teach you, but she'd probably be accepting. I would learn the lessons. <laughs> I loved that she had three husbands. Oh, so oh, did I. God, I love it so much. <laughs> I did not have to make that up. It's right there. So, <laughs> I'm like, so good. Oh, man. So it was terrifying. <laughs> the first two issues, I rewrote eight times before <laughs> the editors said, okay, yes, this will work. And it was exhausting trying to keep up with it every month. I have a learning disability. I have fibromyalgia. So there's you know, exhaustion and pain all the time. And I have right. uh, a full-time job as a professor. And I don't like repeating anything. 
So the repeated effort of, oh, I got it out, it's done, it's done. And then, oh, you mean I have to do it again next month and then next month and then next month. I was always tired, always kind of struggling. So at some point, the editors emailed me and said, I forget which writer of Batman they referenced, but they said, you know, he had a co-writer for a long time. Would you like a co-writer? <laughs> and I said, yes, so hard. I think the brown shook. Um <laughs> <laughs> and they suggested uh, Dan Walters, who was writing Lucifer at the time. Right, and yeah. Dan was such a great collaborator. I learned so much about writing comics from him. He knew when to suggest ideas. He knew when to step back. He showed me, you know, stuff about formatting, stuff about plotting, because I can't plot for shit. I cannot plot. <laughs> and he took on the lore and, and found little tidbits uh, about a Nancy and stuff that he would just throw in. And so you had these, you had a white guy from London and a <laughs> black Caribbean woman from Canada writing <laughs> characters from New Orleans <laughs> and in one scene from Japan. But so far, nobody's yelled at us, I don't think. So I think <laughs> that have done too badly. <laughs> right, exactly. So Iserly, did you kind of set out to make this be her arc? To me, it's like classic Sandman story. In the beginning, she has this robust life and there's a big party on her boat. And then, you know, she gets shaken and she loses her power a little bit, you know, still very powerful, but thrown off of her game. And so she kind of has to come back. And to me, that's like classic Sandman stuff. So I was just curious if that was kind of your overall idea for the series from the beginning or if that was just kind of how things kind of rolled out. I don't remember. So let's say it was Neil's idea. <laughs> um, after a <laughs> So I don't remember. I remember that the thing about there being, I want to say, a wall or a break in the dreaming or I think that was Neil's and the whole... Um, Kotal's delusion thing was Neil's. Then the four of us, the four writers, started talking about each of our issues. And we parted from each other fairly quickly. But in the beginning, we were, we were trying to sort of pull something together that the four stories could depart from. So I don't remember if it was meant to be Azuli's arc all along. But it, she's the god in this one, and it's her damn house. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah, and that was another thing that Domo made better. I at first imagined her being on a, a sort of a houseboat, sort of one of those little things that you could, you know, maybe fit a family of four on if you mostly would. And he was like, no, it's going to be a New Orleans riverboat. It's going to be a steamboat because if you're going to have a party in there, you want it to be a ball. I was like, oh, shit, yes. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Yeah, those opening visuals just still, I will always remember them because it's just immediately sets the tone of where you're at. It's just like, oh, yes, we're in this enormous party and like, here's what's happening. I love that first issue. I threw everything in in the kitchen sink and he added more. <laughs> he added the go-go boys hanging from the ceiling and, and the waiters in the little shorts and I said. Domo, what's holding up their bow ties? No, don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> probably better in my imagination. <laughs> and, and he knew when I said, I, I want Ezra to have gravitas. She's a goddess. She's going to be tall or she's going to be like superhero tall. But she's also, she's thick. She's mm -hmm. a mermaid. She needs some body fat or she'll be cold all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, to be thick and beautiful and tall and strong and femme at the same time and so when I said things like, and when she has legs, I want her to be wearing 
pink army boots with glitters. It's like, it happened. (laughs) (laughs) And we're all the better for it, you know? Like, she's such an incredible character. Like, even just, like, Erzuli Freda. But when you think about Erzuli Dantor, Erzuli Red Eye, I mean, what a wonderful exploration of this mythology of Yoruba, this faith, and then also of, like, storytelling and and the complexity of the ways we can turn a character and through crisis they become different people i mean it just feels like if you want to learn to tell good stories like you got to be reading house of whispers there's such good pacing and and you know i like when erzuli teeters on the loss of control but i like that she gets it back i like that she's so strong you know and like shakparna is the one who really loses control but not erzuli she she comes to the edge and she gets back in control it's like ah that's so cool <laughs> thank you because <laughs> mostly what i was reading is people saying they didn't understand it and of course it sucks it was gonna suck because blah blah because reasons um, yeah is uh one reviewer who bless his heart when bought every single issue i think because every month he would review it so he could pan it horribly <laughs> <laughs> and i began to appreciate him because he was putting in some work <laughs> you're like thanks for coming back (laughs) that is a beautiful way of reframing that that's very generous i like that he was paying his money and doing his thing and you know (laughs) a dedicated (laughs) hater you know at least least he's consistent (laughs) yeah i feel like i did see reviews that were like that a little bit that were like oh i didn't get it or something and i'm like did you just did you not read it or like what happened? Because to me, yeah, this is just classic Sandman. Like it's I new and awesome. Way, Sarah. It like pisses me off that people will say that because I'm like, this is Sandman. This is no more heady, no more philosophical, no more trippy than any of the history of Sandman. It is all of those things. And sometimes don't listen, Neil, more coherent You know, like there are some places where Sandman is like, I genuinely don't know what's happening. I'm like, I'm in, but I don't know who this is. I don't know where we are. What happened to the dreaming? Like, where are we? And that's fine because I'm in, right? Like, I'm like, let's do some mystical weird shit and let's be super meta about narratives and let's bring up biblical shit and let's bring up mythological shit from around the world. And like, this is exactly that. Sorry, Sarah, I totally interrupted to rant, but this has been on my mind. I am I hate it. I'm so mad. I'm like, don't tell me you're a comic book nerd and tell me you didn't like this. It is of the fucking kind. <laughs> to be fair, some people did get that it was very much in the vein of the Sandman. Before we started, all of us had been reading Sandman comics, but Vertigo gave us all six of the the graphic novels, the whole run. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about the others. Maybe they didn't have to read them. Maybe they did. I had to read them because I had not read the whole thing. Uh, And I I have no memory. So (laughs) 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 I remember on the plane back from New Orleans, I believe the last leg of the flight was Denver to the little town that's Riverside, that's where I live. So it's a smaller plane. And I still had reading to do, so I pulled out volume six of the Sandman graphic novels and opened it up, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And I looked back, and there was a young man behind me, and he said, Sandman was the last thing I expected you to pull out of your bag. And I thought, why? Oh, right, I'm black and old. Um, (laughs) But more than anything else, to him, I'm old. (laughs) And I couldn't tell him that I was about to start writing the Sandman, it was not news yet. We weren't allowed oh. to say. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. And you're like, maybe I can get away with it with this. Nope, no, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> I thought I was just going to 
bus trying to sit on the secret for so long. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a journey. But yes, yeah, some people do get that I am definitely paying homage to the Sandman, but I'm also pulling in there's all kinds of musical references, black musical references, there's literary mm-hmm. references, there's all kinds of some grad student is going to have a heyday. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Someone is coming up in comics, like, you know, young right now, reading them. And like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Dissertation on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What I think is so important, too, is like part of what Sandman claims that I think can be a slippery slope, right? Is Sandman claims this like, I'm the dreaming. I'm a universal thing. I have access to all things. Right. And there there are points where dream shows up in different ethnicities at different times and different bodies. And that's dangerous. Right. Especially when it's written by an entirely white team. From my knowledge, I'm sure there are points where it wasn't just that. But I think that House of Whispers actually rounds out the series in a way where that doesn't feel so colonialist, like so colonizing, so like. We're taking this thing that we decided is universal and then we're going to paint a deity figure over it who is steeped in white values, but treat it like it's universal, which is an incredible harm. So that's the other piece for me is like, this is what I was hungry for. When I read The Sandman, that was so much of like, I didn't want to hear more of the white stories, frankly. I didn't, you know, at some point I was like, I'm good. Like, I get it. I get it. Like, I get the cureness of it all. Like, I, I get the feelings. I'm ready for, like, a different aspect of this. If if this truly is a collective consciousness we have, why the fuck is it so white? And I'm not, like, I'm white. Like, I'm not the most intelligent person when it comes to racial analysis. But, like, when you say you're doing everyone, I kind of have to wonder where everyone else is. Yeah, and I I saw what Neil was reaching for. Mm. But at some level, you're also mm. writing out to what you know. And I don't think of Neil as entirely white. He's a Jewish man. It's a little different. But I know what you mean. I mean, you look at the character of death and the man's like a piece of paper. <laughs> and then at one point, he turns African. And I was like, no, don't do that. That's just weird. That's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I kept having questions for the editors about what, what are the endless to get? All right, tell me again. All right, so they're they're not gods. Well, that's good. They're universe. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So that means that Elzuli is are is she are, are gods subordinate to the dreaming? Well, no, they aren't. He was very careful about that. That it, it's not a relationship of hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, and that the characters we know as the endless aren't really exactly beings. They are embodiments of an idea or something, something very numinous. But you're right that the original stories, even when they tried not to be, didn't quite get there. They they still were mostly white. And I don't mind people writing from what they know if they write so thoughtfully. And I believe he did. And then when he could, Mm -hmm. he turned around and he made a room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He literally said to us, I've created these toys. Go and play. And I don't know yeah. if I'd be doing that with my characters. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, they're mine. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, y'all can't touch. I don't even want to see fanfic. Like, <laughs> I don't mean that, but, <laughs> but I don't. Yeah. Brief diversion. I think there are some things Neil Gaiman does like 
nobody else. And it kind of irks me. Like, it kind of pisses me off that, like, he's so good at certain things. But I also think you're right. I think generally, as he's grown as a creator, in my understanding, like, he's become even more aware of his limitations and where to pass the mic, so to speak. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So that's a theory I've had about him. <laughs> like, I don't fucking know Neil Gaiman. <laughs> like, so it's very cool to hear that's actually true. And he talked to me a little bit about struggling to... You're working with artists, so whatever you get is going to be their depiction. So, for instance, every so often I would have to say, when I'd see sketches, particularly for covers, Domo was fine, but sketches, I'd have to say, you remember Gasoline's stick? She needs to be bigger than this. She's not just curvy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And him having to do similar pushback with trying to make the characters not so white, not quite so white, because the industry is a very conventional industry and with conventional standards of what is beauty and what is heroism. So I understood where he was coming from. He's also very, very canny when I, I wanted a cis man full frontal nude scene and, and DC higher up said, nope, <laughs> no, no pee in our... So I went to daddy, I, I wrote Neil and, went, <laughs> and he wrote back and he said, it's the bat penis, isn't it? And I said, what now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is not the first time this has come up on this podcast. The bat penis changed comics. It really did. It did. I had to go and look for this comic. And for the next day, my partner was saying, to the bat penis. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> <laughs> and it totally was the bat penis. The bat penis like ruined it for all of us. It really did, didn't it? Yeah, that's the end. Now it'll be another like twenty years before there can be full male frontal nudity in a comic. It was the final penis. It was the first. The first and the final. At least the penis that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. 
person's heroic. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Batman! Oh, Batman! Yeah, <laughs> you and your penis. <laughs> so, speaking of bodies, I I'm just going to segue. I don't know how to talk about Batman's penis anymore. I really appreciated the body diversity, and I really like. I'm I'm so excited to hear you talk about like talking with artists and saying, no, I didn't mean curvy. <laughs> I meant thick. I mean, you also pushed the line on that male of nudity on some of those ghosts. <laughs> you tried. You tried to get a penis in. I saw. I was like, oh, that's getting real close. To- <laughs> that's that's yeah. Domo again. <laughs> Good job, Domo. A plus. That was amazing. Everybody who was in it, it also wasn't like so often when, when we see fat rep, it's like the sole fat character, right? And usually they're like self-hating because that's what we like to consume in a society that's obsessed with thinness. So I thought it was like so great to not not only like, yeah, Erzuli is thick and, and powerful and amazing, but also like random people are fat and not to be made fun of just because that's what their bodies look like. And it was so refreshing, like... Sarah and I talk about this all the time, like so used to seeing a fat character arrive and it immediately be a punchline, especially in comics. And it's just such a turnoff. I was reading one that I actually liked. I was like enjoying it. And then there was just this mean, mean fat joke. And I was like, you know what? There are plenty of other comics to read. I think I will close this one. And it felt so good to like turn page after page and see big round bodies and, you know, big boobs on all kinds of people of all genders. And then to see like really thin drag queens and community with fat people. And it was just like everybody being beautiful and rich and like this big tapestry of body diversity coming together. And I don't see that in comics. So it was just to me such a breath of fresh air. It was a feast for my eyes, you know, just to be like, yes, fat people, uh, looking good, looking fat. I love it. Making love, being naked. There's some boobies. I love it. It was great. Because <laughs> that, that was, you know, deliberate on my part. Uh, but it means that decades of good feminist training of <laughs> are bearing fruit. And it saddens me that this is 2020 and this is still an issue that people, you're not the first person to have remarked on it, that people are just so grateful to see actual bodies represented and I, I wanted for sure to have fat people skinny people old people young people I wanted to have people who were disabled I wanted to have tons of people of color I wanted to have as much gender representation as I could squeeze in there and again Inker I say to Domo so this person no they're performing on the dance floor one of their legs they don't have any leg below the knee I want this line of their pose to be as dramatic as everybody else's and what he did was beautiful. And I want to have a kid in a wheelchair playing with the other kids. I want to have, I don't know if you've read all the way to the end of the two-year run yet, but there's a particular scene. It's one panel where somebody's boyfriend realizes that she's in trouble and he's going after her. And they have been sleeping out under the stars and he can see her retreating in the distance and to get to her, he has to get over to his wheelchair, get into his wheelchair, and get moving. And that panel that Dumu drew and the colorist colored made me burst into tears. Yeah. Oh my God. One panel and it was like my eyes were hungering for it because he's going to get her and he's going to save her and he's going to use his fucking wheelchair to do it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. 
So beautiful. The representation. I don't think you even named all the times that a mobility device is used. I mean, there, there are so many of them. I mean, metaphorical and, and literal, right? Like there's the way that the deities interact with their horses. It was so beautiful for me. I mean, let's talk about the parts that make us cry, right? Like that sounds like a great prompt. I'm like, oh, who wants to cry? The part that made me cry so much is when Agme is riding Roger and Alter Boy is talking to Agme, and Agme is like, oh, my love. And Alter Boy is like, oh, Erzuli's not here right now. Like, it's it's just me. And he says, like, you're so beautiful. And you, you're with her so often. Like, you you just, you remind me of her and how much I love her. And there's this look on Alter Boy's face. And Alter Boy as a genderqueer person, I'm not sure what other terms Alter Boy would use. But, like, as a, at least what I'm seeing as a genderqueer person, th- there's like, this sweet blush and just this, like, I don't know. It was like, I felt like you were saying some shit. I wasn't quite understanding, but also it was affecting me on such a deep level. I was bawling. Just like the sweet reverence and acceptance and recognition and multidirectional honor and the multidirectional like sexual attraction. I was like, this is polyamory on like a spiritual level. I don't know, man. I'm going to spend the rest of my life like trying to capture that same moment somehow in my fiction and be like, how can I bring altar boy to my story ah just so beautiful and and again i think paid such genuine homage and respect to drag communities queer communities trans communities and particularly you know black ones which are the the basis for all of us um so just wept my eyes out sarah why'd you cry (laughs) (laughs) oh wow i mean i cry a lot with uncle monday even though that seems kind of odd i guess because like Uncle Monday has so much. Oh, yeah. Like, has this kind of brutality, but at the same time, this kindness. And there's just so many layers with Uncle Monday that I feel like that's a character that pops in. And at times, my eyes will water because I'm just like, oh. Also, just the end, how the arc ended, which I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to spoil it for people because everybody should read this series. But yeah, just the way that it all kind of came together at the end. I was definitely (laughs) crying over that last issue for sure. And that would be issue 22? Yes, issue 22. I I wrote it towards that final uh, page. Uh, Yes. That page was in my mind the whole time. Oh, man. Everything was written towards that. The person who first introduced me to Uncle Monday is Andy Duncan, who is a fellow writer, a fantasy writer, not at all a man of color, (laughs) but he wrote this lovely story for me in an anthology I published. And... There's this character Uncle Monday, and I got very curious about, I mean, his Uncle Monday. <sighs> scary. Oh, scary. <laughs> uh, I got curious about Uncle Monday and then discovered Zora Neale Hurston writing about him and, you know, just kind of track the folklore back. And he is really complicated. And then I had to come up with an origin story for him. Like, why is he a gator? Why wouldn't he be a crocodile? Like, why? And the original character drawings for Uncle Monday actually come from John Jennings, who's a comics artist and professor and organizer. He organizes black comics events all across the country uh, and a design and hip hop teacher. And he drew Uncle Monday um, and what was under Uncle Monday's hat. And I I went to Vertigo and said, so I kind of told somebody I was doing this. (laughs) He's in in the industry. He knows he won't tell anybody, but look at this cool drawing he made. And they were okay with (laughs) it. And so was Domo. Domo was also okay with using that as an inspiration. Oh, I love it. 
<laughs> You're like, listen, I've been talking to some friends, and I love that. One, That's one guy, so real. One guy. And uh, don't fire me. <laughs> Please don't fire me. So Uncle Monday is a favorite of mine, too. And once I did some of the historical research and began to piece together his history and the history with the Black Seminoles, African enslaved people that in North America, in Florida, ran and were taken in by Native communities and became part of the communities. So all of that history played into it. Yeah, Uncle Monday is fun because he's very tender. He misses his wife. Yeah. Oh. Then Love a wife guy. Love a yeah, wife guy. Yeah, every time. Like, I'm just like, all I want to see from men is for them to be wife guys. <laughs> and so I was like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Like, this is hitting all of the buttons for me. And I I definitely, you know, I miss Uncle Monday's wife too. <laughs> like, I was like, oh. Yeah. I loved like the random things that would make him think of her. I was like, that feels so genuine. Like the things that make me think of my boo are never like the normal things. It's always like, oh, look at that bird that fell out of a tree. Oh, that would make them sad. Now I'm thinking about them. How weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like torturing a shrimp. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. And I had to look up some seminal words because his son appears and his son is multi well multi-species actually but multi-racial so i had to do a lot of research for this thing um linguistic research all kinds of stuff but were fun to do as difficult as the writing was at times the research was a lot of fun right because you also did comic book research which i was going to bring up you get to write a couple of the classics. Like you got to write Constantine in there and you got to write the Corinthian. And I was just curious if that was something, did you choose that? And then, you know, do you have a long history with those characters? Corinthian, I want to say that, forget who was writing him in this reboot. So I believe it was Dan's idea to pull in the Corinthian. And so we had to coordinate with that writer. Constantine, the editor's suggestion and they wanted him to do kind of a cameo in a bunch of the comics because he's now having his own series and because he is an attention seeker john constantine would absolutely show up in everybody else's shit being like i'm back i'm here to cause some problems and tell you i know everything bye yeah. <laughs> And I'm a white guy and I'm going to talk some twee right now because <laughs> West African magic too. <laughs> I love him. I love him that he's bi. I love that he's just so not here to make anybody happy. <laughs> and then I got to write Papa Midnight. Right. Papa Midnight. Yeah. And that one, the editors were like, so would you like to write Papa Midnight, you know, you get to do some reinvention of the character. And I say, yeah, yeah I'm so here for reinventing. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Papa Midnight needed that. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard to keep his story and yet pull a little bit more out of it. And I know that writers before me have tried. So I, I knew that I, I was in good company with people trying to <laughs> <laughs> kind of give Papa Midnight some layers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, layers are nice. Yeah. Uh, and so having... Hmm, it's a bit of a spoiler. Having Aesop as his foil. Right. Aesop was really fun. Yeah. But I knew I wanted to bring back some of the women from the Papa Midnight story because they do not get treated well at all. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to give them some airtime and some comeuppance uh, <laughs> to poor Papa Midnight. Reading the original Papa Midnight story, he's a book for So he's not only uh, knowledgeable about voodoo, he's a 
priest, essentially. He's a religious man. And how he gets to be who he is while having that training helped me pull layers out of him. So yeah, sometimes it was our idea. I knew that I wanted to have Mazikeen do a oh, yeah. camp. And luckily I was co-writing with the person who was writing Mazikeen. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it easy. So I said, can I put these in there? And he's like, okay, let me see what she's doing right now. Yeah, 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 that's it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I love I, her, yeah. I first took note of her in the TV series in Lucifer. I was gonna bring up the TV series. Mazikeen in the TV series is my everything. Listeners, I say this a lot, but I'm gonna say it again. And I'm gonna mean it just as much as I mean every time. I don't know if I love any character as much as I love Mazikeen. She's amazing. And so cool. Part of the fun about her is that when Neil wrote her, you can't tell what she's saying, really. She only has half a face. And he doesn't make it nice or make it easy to understand her. You just have to try and say those words yourself and figure out what it is she would be saying. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and that her true face, the one she wants to keep, is the monstrous half a face. It's one of the things I love about her, that she is herself so much. So I enjoyed getting her to have a moment with Yazumi. <laughs> yes. And the things that are chasing them in that scene are totally Dan Waters. He came up with them. And I mean, these, these are called, really? But that, okay, I think I like it. It's so weird. <laughs> it feels good when you can be like, I think I like it because it's weird. Yeah. Yes. Love when, love when yeah. weird looks out. There's a scene that, that was fun to write where three of the girls are literally in the dragon's mouth. And it's a dragon that spits acid. So it starts eating through their shoes. And the only person wearing proper shoes is the butcher and boots. <laughs> she's holding all of them up and thought, she's flagging she has a, a handkerchief in her pocket and she <laughs> I had to go look go, go and look up exactly what colors I meant and what side she would be flagging in <laughs> yeah right because she needs a handkerchief to wipe the little girl's hands <laughs> so there's just little nods to things there's nods to things like kink and there's nods to stuff that I don't always make explicit but it's in there yeah, that's one of the things where I'm just like, this is a comic I'm going to be able to reread a bunch of times. The way that I discovered your work initially was through the book, The Salt Roads. And I felt very much the same with that, where I just got finished rereading it and was I had like a completely different experience the second time. That to me always speaks of there being a lot of rich world building behind the process. I mean, House of Whispers, there's things that I don't even know about. I feel like that I'm going to be like <laughs> discovering as I go along, like again and again. So I love the idea of a comic that I can just keep reading. It ended, you know, and of course I was like of the team of, I want to see this comic go on for the rest of my natural life. I don't, I feel like that might not be sustainable for the creative team, but like <laughs> that's what my desire is. But then it's also just like, as it stands as a complete book, I feel feel like I'm going to be able to buy an omnibus of this. I'm going to be able to like reread it again and again. So that to me is just a testament. There's one more book coming out that's collected the last 10 issues. So right. As a, as a graphic novel. Yes. Um, once we got done, there was another, um, there was a comics journal that was saying, well, see, it got canceled. We told you it would. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it, it, it ended. That's what happened. It, it ends. Yeah, people no. do that all of the time in <laughs> 22 comics, issues? Like 20? That's heavy yeah. for now. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, comics get canceled after like 10 issues these days, and that's very common, you know? And then also the fact that you got to 
tell the story. Like that's a whole complete story. A lot of times comics end before that can happen. <laughs> that's like a, a hugely ridiculous criticism. It doesn't surprise me that comic fans are making that criticism. <laughs> it sadly it surprised me because I remember saying, but wait, when you get to the end of a novel, do you say it was canceled? Like, oh, this is I actually canceled. do. That is what I do. Uh, I close it and I'm like, this shit's canceled. Because I'm so mad I finished the book. I'm just so mad. I plan on canceling the Salt Road later today. When I finish it. I'll let you know. I, uh-huh. I felt that way about it many a time when I was in my life. Everything I'm working on is canceled the first time I put a word on the page. It's canceled. Um, Hey everybody, have you ever thought I would like to tell people about this podcast and have more people listen to it? Well, I think that you should, and here's how. So you could go and give us a five-star rating and review us if you would like. Now... I'm not trying to make demands on your time, but I don't think it'll take that long. So if you have just a few seconds, then that would help us out a lot. Thank you. Talking about comics and and novels together, I was curious if you would talk a little bit about, it seems like such a simple question, but I'm dying to know, like how did you approach them? Did you approach them the same way? Do you approach them differently? Basically, what to you was the difference in your experience of writing a novel versus writing a multi-issue comic story that is a graphic novel? It's very, very different because I had to have so many arcs and I was supposed to be in control of them. So you have the the 22-page arc that is each issue. And that's in many ways more like writing a form that is strict in, in format. So a sonnet or, you know, 22 pages, you have to know what's going on the even side sides of the page, what's going on the odd side. You have to know where the even and odd sides of the page are. So it's very different. And then you have to have a six month arc and a year arc. And because it's for DC, who is selling these things way in advance, they want to know what's going to happen because they have to write the copy that sells it to the bookstores who sell it to them. And so they kept pestering me for what's my plan for the arc. And I'd say, I'll let you know once I've written it. <laughs> and that, is, that just wasn't going to fly. So God bless Dan Waters again, because he's used to working this way. And he's very good at doing an arc plotting that sounds plausible enough and that gives you some guideline. And then he does page outlines. So I got used to it. So now I approach novels differently. Um, novels, I'm about 80% of Panzer. I sit down and I write, and all of a sudden somebody is claiming to be Jimi Hendrix's guitar, and I have no idea why, and I have to figure it out. <laughs> but there's something subtle that's changed, I think, I hope, in how I approach plot as a result of having written the comics. Uh, it's a very, very different way of writing. Right, definitely. Yeah. What do you have coming up? What is going to be your next projects, if you can talk about them? I have a short story that's part of an Iannale, part of an anthology released simultaneously with an art exhibit and a film, but I'm, I'm not sure how much I could say about it yet. Right. But I don't have too much else planned because I'm working on finishing a novel right now, and then I'll hand it to my agent and see if he can sell it. Um, I'm very excited because 
Uh, this is a novel I started writing just as health stuff was coming to a head. And I have been struggling with this novel for about 13 years. And for 13 years, I have been in large part unable to see beyond a sentence at a time. And um, I'm here to tell you, I'm a woman of a certain age. And <laughs> finally, a doctor took me seriously and tested my hormones. And now I'm on all the hormones. <laughs> and suddenly I can think. Um, yeah. So a week before last, I finished a draft of this novel that's been largely written. It had a beginning, middle and end. It just was a hot mess in the beginning, middle and end. <laughs> <laughs> last week, I finished a draft of it for the first time in 11 years. And as of today, I am 60% through the final draft. Wow. That's called Black Art Man. And that's, I don't know if it's coming up. He may not be able to sell it, but I have written it and I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations on that too, because I have a friend who also suffers from, uh, you said fibromyalgia, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just getting people to even believe her was the same uphill struggle all of the time. And she produces art at the same time and she'll be like, well, I'm not productive enough. And I'm just like, good God, <laughs> like, you know, from, from where I'm at, you know, you seem extremely productive. And of course you've written tons of books, like you've written a lot. So yeah, it's, it's always interesting, I guess, because I feel that I always hold myself to a much higher standard, of course, than what I hold other people. So if I'm not <laughs> productive that day, I'm just like, oh, such a terrible writer, you know, whatever. Oh, no. But I'm but, very lucky to be in a job where they started me with tenure, which means I have a lot of choices about when I teach and I'm only teaching two courses at a time. So if I have the kind of day where I have to literally crawl to get to my bed because I can't stand up, <laughs> there's room for those days. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And had to learn not to. Well, still, it's always a fight. You always think you're a worse whatever it is than you should be. Right. yeah well yeah yeah this is one of the things that I don't remember who said it but it was like mind-blowing for me which was like as a writer your work never catches up to your talent because everything you've written is something you've completed and it made you a better writer it's a constantly shifting horizon so I think that in of itself could cause madness I'm surprised we have not all lost it but also like we live in a capitalist society that's like where's your product show me your product what makes you worth living And my therapist and I have been talking about it a lot. Like I went into therapy just bawling. I was like, I've been unproductive. And she's like, okay, uh, what does that mean? I'm like, I'm a bad person. She's like, I'm very confused. Like, aren't you an anti-capitalist? And like, don't you believe all these things? And I was like, oh, damn, don't use my logic against me. It is by nature of the way our society has been organized, like always going to be a battle, right? It it shouldn't be. It should be completely understandable that people would have ebbs and flows in creativity. And also, especially when when living with something like fibromyalgia, like your life is going to look different at different times. And I know that for me, like a lot of my health things are super exacerbated by stress. So like, how am I helping myself? Like, I'm so stressed out about being sick, but like, this is not helping. Being stressed is making me feel stressed. Yeah. (laughs) I could just go back in time 48 hours and tell myself that. I might have had a better day. (laughs) I once heard a well-known choreographer in Toronto, just a comment he made just as an aside comment he said you know the the work that you make is never going to be as good as the work you imagine (laughs) i'm like god damn it he's right (laughs) why is he reading me like that (laughs) 
such a relief because you have to translate your perfectly lovely imagination through the means to communicating it. And right. every layer adds another challenge. Imposter syndrome is another thing I hear people talk about a lot. And I finally realized you only have imposter syndrome because you're doing the shit. Right. <laughs> if you work, what? Yes. Oh, oh my God. That's good. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't doing it, you wouldn't you feel wouldn't like you were. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I've never between, even thought about it like between that. Between yeah. that and the quote you said before about how the the work never <laughs> matches up to your imagination, I think we can call it an interview. Great episode. Everyone's learned their big life lessons. Wow, that is some good stuff. That's beautiful. Because, you know, I think imposter syndrome is true for people of many marginalized identities. And so it's important to know how to live to live with it, you know, and, and grapple with it. So that's beautiful. Of course you'd have imposter syndrome. You're in an environment where, like, <laughs> you're not supposed to make it. <laughs> it wasn't built to help you do this. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of it is, again, that whole capitalist thing. We're supposed to feel different if we are accomplished. But we're still us. You don't feel any different, so your brain is going, but wait, I, I can't have done anything because I'm still mean. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm supposed to be super me now. And it's just like, <laughs> no, you never become super me, it turns out. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> you just always you, it turns out. Yeah. I don't I don't have that Shazam power. That doesn't mean <laughs> I know. And I want it, but yeah. yeah, there's no adult that's gonna show up and take over my life. Like that would be great. But it's not going to happen. So this is what I have. Yep, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I could just, like, talk to you for forever. This was so delightful. And House of Whispers is so beautiful. I'm sure our readers who have not read it will be doing so shortly. But I'm so, this is so weird, I'm so proud that it's in the body of comics. Like, I'm so happy for us. Because I think that it is exactly like you said, there's going to be somebody who is going to make this, uh, you know, a dissertation about House of Whispers. I can't wait to like learn about, you know, all the literary theory. Like I'm going to be like, ooh, interesting. Oh, Lacan, how fascinating. <laughs> Derry dog, don't mind if I dairy do. Um, I think that that will be great. But I also think so many comics creators are, are em so empowered by seeing something that is so rich. I mean, in the color saturation, I mean, in the layers of the story, I mean, in the true diversity. When we say diversity, I mean House of Whispers, right? Seeing people who use wheelchairs, seeing people who are fat and not villainized, seeing people who are black and 45 shades of black, you know, it's, it's so rich. And I'm so happy for all of us. I'm so glad that we get to have this as part of the body of comics, like I said, but also to look to like, I think I'm going to be a better writer for for having read it. And same with Salt Roads. It's just the the way to think about, we didn't even talk about this. And I was telling Sarah, I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to ask. But it's like the voice. The voice is so clear in each of those pieces. And since that's such a slippery concept, it's worth engaging with. And, and for me, it will, it will certainly be works that I return to as I continue to develop my own stories. So I, I just, I'm on cloud nine. I'm like, dee, 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 everything's so cool. <laughs> and I mean, the artistic team as it shifted that, that basically took my ideas and made them gorgeous and better. Mm -hmm. People pulled out all the stops, like everybody, including the editors. Right. Um, I expected to have a harder time working with, you know, editors from DC. No, <laughs> <laughs> they were amazing. They were straight up amazing. And just, 
what I learned from the letterer to the colorist to the inker to the people doing the cover art has been a, a humbling, humbling thing to do. It's been wonderful and I feel very honored to be able to do that and just stuff I learned from Neil and just oh, very nice. It was a lot of hard damn work. It was nice. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like a lot of hard work. Like you look at this comic and it's like, yeah, a lot of people did a lot of work on this. Yeah, people put in late hours. You can tell. Seriously. There's, there's so I, much care, you know. I don't think Domo slept for two years. <laughs> I, I hope Domo's still sleeping right now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So this was amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. I had so many questions about House of Whispers. I feel like I probably could still do a whole nother episode of questions about House of Whispers. <laughs> but am. this has been beautiful. And I am such a fan of your work. I am so excited to keep reading and to discover new things. And I mean, this is an incredible experience. Thank you so much for thank taking you. the time with us. And thank you Absolutely. for such great questions. We well, thought about them for a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I'm the vocal fangirl, but let's just say that in Sarah's heart, there's a whole group of cheerleaders shaking their pop bombs <laughs> about this because Aww. so the podcast only been around for about a year. And I think like early on, Sarah was like, my dream list of people, Nalo Hopkinson. <laughs> like, I don't know if we can ever make it happen, but I want to. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> what the hell? You're here with us. Like this, this is so beautiful. And this is like House of Whispers is exactly what Bitches are on Comics is about. It's about. Yes. The, the power of like queerness, the power of women, the power of people of all genders, marginalized genders. It just, it's such a testament to the power of creation, man. Like, damn. So thank you for taking the time to let us be like, oh my God, and this part was my favorite. And what part made you cry? And that's like the, to me, like the best kind of conversation. This thank you great. so much. Yay. Yeah. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.